As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrow and Lisa Abramowitz. Join us each day for insight from the best in economics, geopolitics, finance, and investment. Subscribe to Bloomberg Surveillance On Demand on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And always on Bloomberg.com, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business App. So I'm going to get right to it with Jobs Day coming up on Friday. ISM Statistics Today All of it coming back down to Federal Reserve policy. And what is so important to understand, and folks, this is out at the Arch of St. Louis on the Mississippi River. It's important when you are a St. Louis Cardinal and you're on injured reserve. So Adam Wainwright of the St. Louis Cardinals saying the Star-Spangled Banner on opening day for the Cardinals, which clearly sets us up for next year. On opening day, Michael McKee, we expect James Bullard of the St. Louis Fed to sing opening day for the Cardinals. Well, I suppose I could make that my first question, Tom, to Jim Bullard. He is the president of the St. Louis Fed, and he joins us now. Uh, good morning, Jim. Uh, Tom wants to know if you're going to sing the national anthem on opening day next I have, year. I have no plans uh, <laughs> to do that. Well, as uh, Roseanne Rosanna Dana used to say on uh, Saturday Night Live, it's always something. Uh, we were in the middle of a quote-unquote banking crisis, and now we've got another oil shock. Uh, this morning, everybody waking up to headlines and say, maybe we go to $100. So as a Fed official, when you see that, how are you reacting? Well, on the financial stress, I think, uh, you know, this is a post Dodd-Frank world. And I I do think that the reaction to the banking problems uh, was swift and was appropriate. And uh, both here in the U.S. and uh, overseas. And Uh, So I think, you know, the idea that there are macro prudential tools that you can use in that kind of situation to calm things down, that seems to have worked so far. You never know uh, if there's further things uh, happening. But if if there are, we can react with macro prudential tools again. Uh, And then on the policy, the monetary policy side, we can still proceed to uh, fight inflation and, and get inflation down during 2023 and 2024 uh, back to target. So I think, uh, you know, this idea that you can uh, walk and chew gum at the same time, you've got the macro prudential tools for uh, financial stress and you've got monetary policy to fight inflation. We can do both uh, as long as the financial stress doesn't uh, morph into something Uh, much larger. And so far, so good. Uh, But knock on wood, uh, you're never sure what's going to be around the corner. But does $100 oil or the idea at least of this oil shock complicate your job? 
Yeah, well, of course, oil's always, uh, uh, the oil price is, is always important. Uh, I would have expected a somewhat higher oil prices anyway with China coming back uh, sooner than expected during the first half here of 2023 and with Europe skirting recession. Uh, so both of those, and strong data in the U.S., all of those are, are pretty uh, bullish factors, I would say, for the oil market. Um, this was a surprise, the OPEC decision, but whether it will have a lasting impact, I think, is an open question. Now, you had already moved up your estimate of where the Fed funds rate needed to be to bring down inflation. You were talking an effective rate of around 5.6%. Does this change that calculation at all? And can you explain why you think we need to go that high to uh, hit the terminal rate? Uh, I think we'll, we will need, I think we'll need to get over 5%. <clears throat> the committee says that uh, the median person on the committee says uh, a little over 5%. I'm a little higher than that. Um, I think inflation will be stickier. And, uh, you know, I'd look mostly at the core measures of inflation, like PCE core inflation, or the Dallas Fed trim mean, which really hasn't come down very much at all, is still in the 4% range. So, uh, you know, 4.6 or something like that. So. Um, so we're still talking about a lot of inflation, more than double our inflation target on that basis. And uh, oil prices fluctuate around. It's hard, to, it's hard to track exactly. Some of that might feed into inflation and make our job a little bit more difficult. Just north of us this morning in Oak Brook, Illinois, McDonald's has told its corporate officials to stay home uh, this week because they're going to start notifying people that they're being laid off. How concerned are you uh, with all these headlines about layoffs coming in that you may go too far. Yeah, the labor market is super strong. Uh, still uh, many more job openings than there are un uh, unemployed workers. I think if a worker does get disrupted uh, today that they should, you know, let's hope and, and pray for them that they'll be able to uh, get a new job. But uh, it's still a very robust labor market with 3.8% uh, unemployment. Um, uh, you know, the Kansas City Fed's labor market conditions index still at a super high level. Uh, jobs reports have been very, very strong uh, in 2023 here. So you're really not seeing much ebbing uh, in the labor market. I think there are <clears throat> structural issues where uh, labor supply is running under labor demand, and, and that's going to take quite a while to, uh, to settle down. What are you expecting for Friday? The jobs report. <clears throat> uh, I don't have an I don't have a number for you, uh, but uh, anecdotal information seems to indicate that the firms are still scrambling for workers. They're doing some other things that are strategies that might slow this down a little bit. They're substituting capital for labor. That makes a lot of sense in this situation. Um, but uh, I just think that on the whole, uh, they still need workers. Well, if they still need workers and supply is running below demand, that has to complicate the idea of monetary policy because that's not what's supposed to happen when you're raising rates as much as you have. Uh, that's true, uh, although I'm not as oriented toward the Phillips curve as many, but um, uh, I think uh, 
the way I would state it is that the strong labor market gives us headroom to fight inflation. It's a good time to be fighting inflation and trying to get inflation back to target while the labor market is as strong as it is. And even workers that get disrupted, uh, hopefully will be able to find a uh, new job and maybe a better job uh, in this situation. You have critics around the country and certainly on Capitol Hill that say workers are finally getting their share. Uh, wages are going up, not quite keeping up with inflation, but much better than they had been. And here comes the Fed, wants to squash them down again and cut the wage increases in order to bring down inflation. What do you say to uh, those people? Well, what are they talking about? Real wages have gone down for most people. So the inflation is hurting them. So inflation is hurting the average worker. So you don't think the Fed has a perception problem with America these days? You'd like to get rid of the inflation so that people can get their, uh, get a, a better uh, labor market outcome and be able to afford the goods that they have to purchase. So um, uh, I think there's been a lot of confusion around this issue. <clears throat> it's true that some, uh, some workers in some categories uh, got uh, more than the uh, in increase in wages that more than made up for inflation. But for many workers, that hasn't been the case. Uh, they've been lagging behind in real wages, and uh, that's why you'd like to bring inflation under control and get a better outcome for the labor market. Uh, markets have uh, been struggling this morning to figure out what's going to happen going forward with the oil price uh, headlines. But uh, going into this weekend, <clears throat> they were pricing four rate cuts uh, over the coming year. Why are you and Wall Street so far apart in what you say is likely to happen? They should listen to me. Uh, so the, uh, here's what I think. I think I put 80 percent probability that the financial stress will uh, decline and then make that your base, baseline uh, forecast. I think that's for low growth, but growth, a continued pretty strong labor market and inflation coming down, that's got 80% probability. Maybe now I'd go to 85% probability or something. And then the other branch uh, where financial stress gets worse, <clears throat> uh, then, uh, you know, then we'll have to bring out more macroprudential tools and it'll be a stressful situation. And all bets are off in that situation. The problem with Wall Street is they've got too much probability on that branch and not enough probability on the other branch. So I think they're going to reprice uh, to the uh, slow growth scenario. And so I think we'll see this change uh, in the weeks ahead here. Go back to the banks for a second. In February, uh, the staff at the uh, Open Market Committee presented on the idea of these asset mismatches on bank balance sheets. So you were kind of aware that this could be a problem. Was there something that the Fed missed or didn't do or should have done to keep these, uh, the, the bank situation, we'll call it, from developing as it has? I can't talk about what was presented at the FOMC meeting, uh, so I will neither confirm nor deny uh, that. Uh, but uh, my own staff here uh, was certainly well aware of uh, issues with banks. Uh, we talked to bankers uh, all the time. We're uh, a regulator of banks, and so we knew uh, that there were issues about, let's say, uh, some deposits running off uh, to um, non-bank uh, entities that wanted to pay a higher rate. Uh, that's occurring. Uh, but I think at a rate that's certainly manageable, for at least for the banks that we talk to, um, they've got uh, some 
uh, securities holdings that have lost value uh, as interest rates have gone up, but that also I think is manageable for nearly all institutions. Um, so that you know they're running businesses and they've got challenges, but they've also they're also competitive, and they'll uh, they figure out ways to um, uh, manage the situation. I would also say anecdotally that uh, most banks say loan demand is is strong, and they actually have incentives to make loans at the higher interest rates if they can, uh, in order to offset some of the older loans that they have that are that are at lower interest rates. Well, we got to send it back to Tom, but <clears throat> given how Tom introduced us, uh, you've got predictions for interest rates, growth, GDP, the end of the year. Cardinals prediction? I'm sure it'll be a great year for the Cardinals. I think they'll win the division and uh, they'll do very well. Another victory yesterday, so excellent. <laughs> All right, Tom Keene, we'll send it back to you uh, and the folks in New York. Um, given the fact that uh, Jim Bullard is so optimistic about the Cardinals, we'll yes. take that as a good sign for the economy, we and hope. The, and we like the pitcher's clock as well. Michael McKee, thank you so much. We're getting back to N National League Baseball here. James Bullard of the Fed. Our John Gittleson and Don Lim report here, an update on the Blackstone Real Estate Income Trust. And they're talking about the liquidity, the redemptions as well that we're seeing. And to put this in scale, this trust was up 8% last year. I want to make clear, even with the withdrawal requests they're seeing, they're seeing some rent stability within the Blackstone Real Estate Income Trust. Stay with us. This is Bloomberg. Now with the latest news from New York City and around the world, here's Michael Barr. That high to uh, hit the terminal rate? Uh, I think we'll we will need. I think we'll need to get over five percent. <clears throat> the committee says that uh, the median person on the committee says uh, a little over five percent. I'm a little higher than that. Um, I think inflation will be stickier, and uh, you know I'd look mostly at the core measures of inflation, like PCE core inflation or the Dallas Fed trim mean, which really hasn't come down very much at all, is still in the 4% range, so, uh, you know, 4.6 or something like that. So, um, so we're still talking about a lot of inflation, more than double our inflation target on that basis. And uh, oil prices fluctuate around. It's hard, to, it's hard to track exactly. Some of that might feed into inflation and make our job a little bit more difficult. Just north of us this morning in Oak Brook, Illinois, McDonald's has told its corporate officials to stay home uh, this week because they're going to start notifying people that they're being laid off. How concerned are you uh, with all these headlines about layoffs coming in that you may go too far? Yeah, the labor market is super strong. Uh, still uh, many more job openings than there are un uh, unemployed workers. I think if a worker does get disrupted uh, today that they should, you know, let's hope and, and pray for them that they'll be able to uh, get a new job. But uh, it's still a very robust labor market with 3.8% uh, unemployment. Um, uh, you know, the Kansas City Fed's labor market conditions index still at a super high level. Uh, jobs reports have been very, very strong uh, in 2023 here. So you're really not seeing much ebbing uh, in the labor market. I think there are <clears throat> structural issues where uh, labor supply is running under labor demand, and, and that's going to take quite a while to, uh, to settle down. What are you expecting for Friday? For the 
jobs report. <clears throat> Uh, I don't have an I don't have a number for you, uh, but uh, anecdotal information seems to indicate that the firms are still scrambling for workers. They're doing some other things that are strategies that might slow this down a little bit. They're substituting capital for labor. That makes a lot of sense in this situation. Um, but uh, I just think that on the whole, uh, they still need workers. Well, if they still need workers and supply is running below demand, that has to complicate the idea of monetary policy because that's not what's supposed to happen when you're raising rates as much as you have. Uh, that's true, uh, although I'm not as oriented toward the Phillips curve as many, but um, uh, I think uh, the way I would state it is that the strong labor market gives us headroom to fight inflation. It's a good time to be fighting inflation and trying to get inflation back to target while the labor market is as strong as it is. And even workers that get disrupted, uh, hopefully will be able to find a uh, new job and maybe a better job uh, in this situation. You have critics around the country and certainly on Capitol Hill that say workers are finally getting their share. Uh, wages are going up, not quite keeping up with inflation, but much better than they had been. And here comes the Fed, wants to squash them down again and cut the wage increases in order to bring down inflation. What do you say to uh, those people? Well, what are they talking about? Real wages have gone down for most people. So the inflation is hurting them. So inflation is hurting the average worker. So you don't think the Fed has a perception problem with America these days? You'd like to get rid of the inflation so that people can get their, uh, get a, a better uh, labor market outcome and be able to afford the goods that they have to purchase. So um, uh, I think there's been a lot of confusion around this issue. <clears throat> it's true that some, uh, some workers in some categories uh, got uh, more than the uh, in increase in wages that more than made up for inflation. But for many workers, that hasn't been the case. Uh, they've been lagging behind in real wages, and uh, that's why you'd like to bring inflation under control and get a better outcome for the labor market. Uh, markets have uh, been struggling this morning to figure out what's going to happen going forward with the oil price uh, headlines. But uh, going into this weekend, <clears throat> they were pricing four rate cuts uh, over the coming year. Why are you and Wall Street so far apart in what you say is likely to happen? They should listen to me. Uh, so the, uh, here's what I think. I think I put 80 percent probability that the financial stress will uh, decline and then make that your base, baseline uh, forecast. I think that's for low growth, but growth, a continued pretty strong labor market and inflation coming down, that's got 80% probability. Maybe now I'd go to 85% probability or something. And then the other branch uh, where financial stress gets worse, <clears throat> uh, then, uh, you know, then we'll have to bring out more macroprudential tools and it'll be a stressful situation. And all bets are off in that situation. The problem with Wall Street is they've got too much probability on that branch and not enough probability on the other branch. So I think they're going to reprice uh, to the uh, slow growth scenario. And so I think we'll see this change uh, in the weeks ahead here. Go back to the banks for a second. In February, uh, the staff at the uh, Open Market Committee presented on the idea of these asset mismatches on bank balance sheets. So you were kind of aware that this could be a problem. Was there something that the Fed missed or didn't do or should have done to keep these, uh, the, the bank situation, we'll call it, from developing as it has? 
I can't talk about what was presented at the FOMC meeting, uh, so I will neither confirm nor deny uh, that. Uh, but uh, my own staff here uh, was certainly well aware of uh, issues with banks. Uh, we talked to bankers uh, all the time. We're uh, a regulator of banks, and so we knew uh, that there were issues about, let's say, uh, some deposits running off uh, to um, non-bank uh, entities that wanted to pay a higher rate. Uh, that's occurring, uh, but I think at a rate that's certainly manageable, for at least for the banks that we talk to. Um, they've got uh, some uh, securities holdings that have lost value uh, as interest rates have gone up, but that also I think is manageable for nearly all institutions. Um, so that you know they're running businesses and they've got challenges, but they've also they're also competitive, and they'll uh, they figure out ways to um, uh, manage the situation. I would also say anecdotally that uh, most banks say loan demand is is strong, and they actually have incentives to make loans at the higher interest rates if they can, uh, in order to offset some of the older loans that they have that are that are at lower interest rates. Well, we got to send it back to Tom, but <clears throat> given how Tom introduced us, uh, you've got predictions for interest rates, growth, GDP, the end of the year. Cardinals prediction? I'm sure it'll be a great year for the Cardinals. I think they'll win the division and uh, they'll do very well. Another victory yesterday, so excellent. <laughs> All right, Tom Keene, we'll send it back to you uh, and the folks in New York. Um, given the fact that uh, Jim Bullard is so optimistic about the Cardinals, we'll yes. take that as a good sign for the economy, we and hope. The, and we like the pitcher's clock as well. Michael McKee, thank you so much. We're getting back to N National League Baseball here. James Bullard of the Fed. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more, Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Right now, the big deal is to speak with John Writing. He's a chief economic advisor at Breen Capital. And there's any number of ways to go here to go here. John, I want to talk with James Bullard of St. Louis. I'm going to say you have been in the camp with Bullard looking for some form of not sustained inflation, but the inflation worry uh, won't go away. Bullard making clear we're putting too much focus on the banking crisis and not enough on monetary policy 101. Do you agree? Um, I do agree. Um, 
I think it's very important to you know this realize that the U.S. is a uh, very strong uh, capital markets and banking system, and it's a very different situation than back in uh, 2007, 2008, uh, and the financial crisis that took down Bear Stearns, uh, Lehman Brothers, um, AIG. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a very different world. So uh, I, I think there is too much focus on that. The, the responses have been very swift, very strong. We can argue what the origins of this is, but we do know that, um, well, in, in effect, there's an implicit guarantee of all deposits, regardless of deposit insurance. There's some reform that needs to be considered later, but, but that was essentially what Powell uh, promised mm -hmm. at the uh, last uh, pre at, uh, FOMC press conference. We're going to rip up the script here with John Writing, who lived the Bear Stearns crisis. I would say one of the great themes right now, John, is that James Diamond standing out front of your Bear Stearns headquarters on that tumultuous day, his hindsight is he made a massive mistake. Are we repeating the, the foibles of Bear Stearns and Lehman Brothers, or have we learned our lessons over 15 years? Well, I think we've learned some lessons. There's no doubt about it that the uh, higher capital levels, the stress tests have done a lot to strengthen the underlying banking system. But you have to have significant questions about how that was implemented by supervisors because if you look at the case of Silicon Valley Bank, they had over $15 billion of losses in their held to maturity portfolio, which doesn't get run through the P&L statement, doesn't get scored against their mm -hmm. capital. So they had almost all of their capital, <clears throat> the size of their capital was mm -hmm. almost the same magnitude as the size of their losses right. in the held to maturity portfolio. Now, you can only hold something to maturity if you have the funding to hold things to maturity. And that's where there is a similarity to 2008, which, and, and in many ways, what happened there was so much faster. Um, right. And, and, but, but we know how to fix bank right. runs. Deposit insurance <clears throat> uh, fixes bank runs, and, and we've had that, and we've had some stabilization in the situation there. And the banking system as a whole looks very different in right. terms of the size of their held to maturity losses against their overall capital. I want to get back on script here, because the time is so important, folks. For just joining us on radio, John Writing and Bring Capital with us this morning. And, and John, I've got to dovetail two themes this weekend. One was Adam Tooze's phenomenal essay in the FT, alluding to the delusion or the imagery, the illusion that nominal GDP gives us. You've written about this for years, and I pull it over to Dominic Constam, ex-Credit Suisse, now at Mizuho, and the idea of we've got an odd nominal GDP because inflation is set high, we have a certain form of restriction, and then the Constam's phrase, are we super restrictive right now? All the dynamics that are going on, does Powell have a restriction he didn't expect? Well, Let's start with one definition of restrictive, which is, do we have restrictive monetary policy? And, and I don't think that, you know, the Fed's seeking that sufficiently restrictive level of policy. Uh, I, I don't think that they, I mean, Jim Bullard made Bullard clear, rightly, yeah. rightly pointed out that the underlying inflation rate is in the fours. And he cited the, the Dallas Fed or, or all the other measures mm. pretty firmly in, in the mid four percent, which means that 
interest rates, the policy rate adjusted for inflation has only barely turned positive. Now, there is a question, how much does a credit tightening have an impact here? Uh, and does that substitute for additional rate hikes? But Jim also said that loan demand has been strong. So, you know, we have to see how that plays out. But when I said we, you know, the U.S. is these twin markets where the, if the banking system has issues, there's still the capital markets. In many ways, this is the reverse of the long-term capital episode uh, back in 1998, where the capital markets froze up and the banking system was there to lend. So we do have to remember that there are big banks as well as small banks. The big banks will get bigger out of this as they did out of the right. last financial crisis. <clears throat> There'll be... I think, willing to lend, willing to take market share. And then there's also the capital market. So you know, let's look at things like the NFIB survey and see if the availability of, of credit becomes right. uh, a, a constraining issue on businesses. It hasn't been uh, up until this point I mean, a, a major concern for them. We don't have to turn this into a history lesson. I, Steve Leisman with a great essay. Uh, he's over at the Death Star. Steve Leisman with a great essay years ago on neo-Vixellian theory. And we don't need to go back to 1910, 1920 theory. But what we have here is a whole body of people, John, who've never lived in a normalized interest rate environment. I want you to speak to our audience on radio and television that have never lived, oh, that's the way the yield curve should look? Oh, we're going to get out to the oddity of, of a normal rate environment. What's it going to be like? You know, it's very funny referring to Steve Leesman's essay because that came out of a conversation that I had with Steve. And we were talking about Vixel before it became popularized, um, the, this concept of a natural rate of interest. Now, the Fed has argued, coming out of work from John Williams for a long time, that that natural interest rate of interest has been depressed and became very low. Olivia Blanchard says that, yeah. Secular stagnation. Yet if you look now in the markets, the markets are saying real interest rates are going to be positive at a significant level for the next decade. We got as high as 1.7%. That was maybe a bit high. We were around one and a quarter percent at the end of last week. So if you have a real rate of one and a quarter percent, and you got to get inflation down, but right now you, you're talking inflation running at un underlying terms yeah. of four and a half percent. Where does that long-term rate of interest belong? Right now, the Fed. Where does it belong? We're going to run out of time, and this is critical. Ken Rogoff's in the camp with you versus what Olivier's saying. We're going to talk to Olivier Blanchard at the IMF meetings here uh, in ten days or so. With that said, where is your new two percent level? Does it have to be elevated higher, as Adam Posen says? Well, well, I think the Fed has to raise its long-term neutral rate of interest from half a percent adjusted for inflation. To something more like one, one and a quarter mm -hmm. percent, where the markets are. Um, I, I would say that the, as a long-term interest rate, allowing for inflation uncertainty, probably should be thinking four percent. You're at four percent anchor for the ten-year. Uh, and, and probably uh, uh, for the funds rate going forward. This idea that 2.5% is our long-run neutral rate of interest, right. um, I, I think it is an outdated concept. Okay, John writing uh, with us today. Very good. Let us move on into the second quarter of 2003 in the equity space. We do that with Lori Calvacina, head of U.S. equity strategy at RBC Capital Markets. The sensitive Calvacina over the weekend saying that the stock market is healing. We're all healing. Lori, how injured were we and how are we healing right now? 
So, look, I think that what happened with SVB was a shock. I mean, and, and that's obviously, you know, what everybody said at the time. But, you know, those companies in particular were very well owned over time in the small and mid-cap community. There are a lot of long-only investors that knew those companies quite well, you know, sort of prior to the crypto era, prior, you know, to the you know, kind of most recent version of the tech bubble. And I think it was just an unanticipated, you know, kind of mini black swan event. And you've had a lot of investors just sort of staying quiet, digging in their heels, doing work. And what we know is that sentiment indicators were already pretty depressed, starting to recover a bit. And if you look at AAII, for example, it shot right back down and kind of went close to GFC-type levels. Now, the brunt of the pain was obviously taken in the banks. Small caps were one of the babies, I think, essentially thrown out with the bathwater because of their cyclicality and because of that bank's exposure. Right. And what we saw over the past week was that the banks and the small caps' performance really stabilized. And I think that's important because the banks are the problem child, essentially, of this crisis. If you look back to 2002, what we saw was that the NASDAQ 100 really started to stabilize after the WorldCom bankruptcy. And that's very different from what we right. saw banks do, the problem child of the GFC, um, in 08 after the different bankruptcies and collapses there. So I think the market is telling you that investors are starting to you know, exhale a bit, even if they're not breathing easy just yet. But what's critical here, Lori, is if I take three groups of mid-cap, small-cap, I got the growthiness crew, very small group. I've got everybody else, and I've got the value trap of banks. Where do I put new money today? Do I buy the banks as a value proposition, or are they a trap? I think time is going to tell on the banks themselves. I think if you talk to Gerard um, and if you talk to ARF, they would tell you there's longer term value being created, but we do need to see a little bit more time to see the dust settle. I think if you look in small cap, though, banks were not the only things that were cheap. Energy was very cheap on a relative basis to both the R2 and the big cap names. Uh, consumer discretionary was something else that really jumped out in recent months as being very undervalued in the small cap space, but still looking quite expensive, frankly, in the large cap space. So it might be more of the time now to be a stock picker in small cap as opposed to buying the index. But I do think there are bargains down there to be had, especially if GDP data and earnings data continue to forecast a recovery in 2024. Lori, after we got Silicon Valley Bank's demise and some of the other banks that really ran into trouble, a lot of people said this is a game changer. It potentially does shift the narrative quite significantly. Is the OPEC Plus news that we got over the weekend similar? You know, it's interesting. I was thinking about that this morning, Lisa, you know, especially in regards to the inflation narrative. Um, I think that they are sort of offsetting uh, forces with one another in terms of the inflation debate right now, whereas SVB may have, you know, sort of put cuts back on the table in a bigger way. We obviously saw interest rate expectations ratchet down. Now you may see those, you know, kind of come back up a little bit, probably not to the same degree. But if you sort of put those aside, I'm not sure that there's been a lot of change in terms of other issues right now on the inflation debate. We know the services sector is weakening. We know that layoffs are probably going to keep wage growth in check. We know that CFOs from the Duke survey last week are talking about how prices and wage growth are both going to come down this year and next year. Their optimism um, is really waning for both this and next year. So I feel like the sources of inflation are generally on the mend. And now we've kind of got these two other big issues that are offsetting each other. I'm not sure I would call each of them game changers, but right. maybe major detours. So what is your, here at the beginning of the second quarter, what is your 12-month lift in equities? 
So we don't do a 12-month forecast, but we've still got our year-end target for December 31st, and that we've still got 4,100. And we feel like that's a nice base case in here. We have yeah. done some valuation work, which suggests there could be some upside from that. I think to really get downside from that, you've got to assume that there's a recession that bleeds into 2024, and I don't think the case has been made for that yet. Lori Calvacina, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it with RBC Capital Markets this morning. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. It's Ed Morris briefs us this morning. Ed, you divide into west of Suez Canal and east of Suez Canal. I want you to talk about the power of this coalition around Saudi Arabia with the Strait of Hormuz and onto the Straits of Malacca and Singapore. What power do they hold? Well, the power that they hold is an ability to cut and an ability to add oil to the market. And that's pretty incredible because as a group, they have shut in capacity that's well over 2 million barrels a day. And they're coming off a banner year in terms of revenue generation. That's something they want to keep. And they, if they want to cut a million barrels a day, they've just shown that they have the power to do it. I literally have on my coffee table uh, at home another firm's analysis to over $100 a barrel, which centers on EM recovery and China recovery. You were brilliant in calling for lower quiescent Brent crude prices. Do you need to reverse this morning and to begin to consider $100 a barrel oil? Well, we're considering higher prices than we otherwise had. And yes, there is a scenario for $100 barrel oil, but I don't think we're anywhere near that yet. To get to $100 oil, we'd have to have significantly more oil taken out of the market and have a lot of uncertainty based on that oil taken out of the market. That is to say, it would come from a disruption to supply in countries such as Iran, Iraq, Libya, Nigeria, all together at the same time. And we would have no sense because of the domestic situation in those countries of when that oil could come back into the market. We have what we consider to be an effort to prevent the repeat of 2008-9, when we had oil prices collapsing from 147 to the low 40s before 
getting to a normalized level of $90 a barrel. It took about a year and a half to have all of that uh, display work out given financial flows uh, and given the uncertainties in the market. We have the financial flows now, and we don't have quite that level of uncertainty. We know that supply is definitely coming into the market. I believe strongly that the increase in prices that we've already had is going to place U.S. production on a higher path to growth than we otherwise might have had. Uh, and we think we're thinking that uh, on first blush, looking at everything at the moment overnight, uh, that we're going to have a fairly balanced market, uh, a, a market that's going to be plus or minus a couple hundred thousand barrels a day, no big inventory build, no big inventory draw. And on uh, on the demand picture that you were looking at, I, I have to say we flatly disagree. We think we're in a period of time when we're seeing demand's last hurrah. Uh, we're seeing, to be sure, growth in China that's formidable. It basically makes up for the loss of uh, demand growth, uh, demand decline in China a year ago. And we don't think after this increase in demand from China, we're going to see uh, Chinese demand ratcheting up much further. Uh, yes, there is EM growth and India leads, but that's that's going to be in the three or 400,000 barrel a day range, not a million barrel a day range. Ed, can you frame out then how much of a surprise this cut was, which was unexpected, and comes at a time where some people are speculating that it was politically motivated to send a message to Washington and to possibly boost oil prices, meaning more cuts down the road if it doesn't work? No, I think it was definitely designed to boost oil prices. They, countries were look, just looking at $60 oil straight on. And yes, they've seen a rally based on a whole bunch of things that they consider to be temporary, not permanent. And uh, yes, they want higher oil prices. Or the, the countries that we were looking at, particularly Saudi Arabia, has a significantly higher fiscal break-even than uh, a lot of other countries. And uh, they're more comfortable with oil, certainly with an $80 base and not bad with a $90 base. They didn't see too much in the way of damage to the global economy at $90 a barrel last year. I don't think we're staring in the face of 100. We're certainly flirting with a market which could see uh, a, a more demand in the spring and summer than we otherwise thought might be. But I think the price is going to cap that demand. Uh, and we're, we're going to see, you know, we, we, we were looking at a world of around 1.4, 1.5 million barrel a day demand. Yes, OPEC was at a higher level than that. Uh, and uh, there was some political factor, I think, involved in their own very tight or a, a supply demand balance, even in their last report. Uh, this goes against that and uh, and says, hey, there's something going on. And I think it's a defense that's going on. They want the higher oil prices. They need it in order to revamp and reinvest in their economies as rapidly as possible. Uh, but they have no better interest in $100 oil than uh, most other countries do. They don't want to see a demand decline. They want to prevent the drop of $100 that we saw or a drop of more than 50% in today's market that they saw in 2008. But quickly, but quickly, Ed, just based on what you're saying, if they want higher prices and 80, uh, perhaps $80 is the floor, maybe $90, then what's to stop OPEC Plus from cutting further and further even as the economy slows? There are a couple of things that stop it. One is that the economies would slow a lot faster than they're now slowing, and they don't want that to happen. They they understand fully well that Chinese growth is not 
exploding the way people thought it was. You look at the numbers, yes, there was a million barrels a day of growth, but that mm -hmm. was Chinese New Year. And that always happens. There's nothing nothing about this, this particular uh, rebound in China that you can get uh, reinforced in your view by what happened. They're really concerned about a drop in oil prices. They just looked at a drop to the 60s, and they're looking back right. at 2008-9, and I think they've made a terrible judgment on that. They think they'll find out that that judgment was terrible because this is not 2008-9 in multiple ways. Ed, do, do, do you give an okay score to the Biden administration? They seem to be a pinata, even pro-anti-oil, whatever. Everybody's beaten up on our president's energy policy. Are you piling on? Are you beaten up on President Biden's energy policy? Uh, well, yes, certainly. And certainly at the beginning of the administration, there was nobody, virtually nobody in the administration that came out of the markets anywhere in the world. They were all people coming from academia, people coming from a very strong uh, pro-environmental, anti-fossil fuel bias. Uh, and they didn't really understand markets. They were forced to understand markets. They've gained a lot better understanding of markets. We've just seen a you know, a reopening of bids on federal lands, uh, this legislation legislation that's going to assure that. And uh, they know in the White House that uh, they don't want to see a higher gasoline prices. And the way to do that is by having uh, the U.S. be the strong power that it is, as, by the way, now the world's largest gross exporter of oil at a country where demand has already softened tremendously, where our demand is down well over a million barrels a day year on year, and our economy is not in bad shape. So we're seeing a transformation at home. Uh, where we've become kind of a critical swing supplier, and Saudi Arabia is very, uh, very sensitive and aware of that. Ed, thank you so much for joining us. Edward Morris of Citigroup here on the shock announcement from OPEC+. Plus. Subscribe to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live every weekday starting at 7 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, TuneIn, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.